want to welcome you here to uh, New Life Church. We're so glad that you're here worshiping with us. And if you're tuning in online, want to give a special shout out to our brother Charlie, who may be watching. Uh, we love you, brother. Praying for you. And uh, we are uh, continuing our study in the book of Exodus. So uh, I hope you've been tracking with us. I hope you got your sermon notebooks uh, handy, ready. Um, I just, this morning as I was uh, worshiping, uh, singing these songs, I just thought, um, boy, there's a theme that's, that's developed here that I hope that you will see as we get into the scripture. And even as we close um, the service, um, I think God wants us to, to know that he is with us. He walks with us through the valley. Um, he is merciful and gracious and kind and long-suffering and patient, and he is working out all things um, for, for our good and for his glory. Of course, we don't always feel like that's the case. I don't know if you've ever felt yourself to be a failure. I have. I don't know if you've ever wondered if you were disqualified from serving God. I have. And if you have, then you're in company, in good company, not just my company, but in good company, because there's a lot of people, there's a lot of people who have experienced that. And, and like I said, there, there have been numerous times in my life when I have wondered, God, when are you going to put me up on the shelf? You know, when you, when you have to wake up and look at yourself in the mirror and you don't see the changes that you were hoping for, maybe even prayed for, and you, you wonder, how, how patient is God towards me? You wonder, hey, have I even really repented? God, when are you going to put me up on the shelf? Well, this morning, we're going to be looking at one of the greatest failures in the Bible, and his name is Moses. Now, that's not usually what you think of when you first think of Moses. You think of a great leader, God's deliverer, the savior of the people of Israel, the red, parting of the Red Sea, the plagues, all that kind of stuff. But, but we're going to see that Moses was just like us. He was human. He was frail. He was not a perfect individual by any stretch. And I think, however, more importantly, besides seeing Moses' failure, what we're going to see is that God um, is really the, the, the focus of, of our text, our, of our story here this, this morning. We're going to see that God patiently refined Moses and prepared him for future ministry despite his failures. Now, that's going to be a, of a great encouragement to us as we move forward. So I'll simply say that if you think that God can't use you or that somehow that your best days are behind you, think again because God's not through with you yet. Let's pray. Lord God, we come before you humbly acknowledging our sin before you and our failures. We know far more than what we are living out in our life, and we acknowledge that we have fallen short of your glory, of your standard for our life. 
And at the same time, we praise you for your grace, which makes up for our sin, our inadequacies, our inabilities, our failures. Lord, your grace is greater than all of our sin put together. And so, Lord, I pray this morning that you would encourage your saints, that you would encourage my heart, even as we look at the story of Moses, of his failure and your uh, unending love, patience, and grace in his life. And so, Holy Spirit, be our teacher here this morning, we pray in Christ's name, amen. So as I mentioned, we're going through the book of Exodus, and we're picking up where we left off last week, which was in chapter 2, verse 10, so we're picking up here in verse 11. And this section of Scripture, I think, can be divided um, into, into three sections. Uh, there are a myriad of, of outlines that are out there. I, I've chosen, basically, to, to look at Moses' sin of presumption, Uh, And then his fleeing to Midian and settling down. And then God hearing the cries of his people. And so let's talk first about the sin of presumption and the failure of Moses. If you have your Bibles, you can open up there. I'll have it up on screen. I'll be reading out of the English Standard Version, beginning in verse 11. One day, when Moses had grown up, He went out to his people and looked on their burdens. And he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. That first phrase, one day when Moses had grown up, covers a lot of ground, a lot of territory. In verse 10, Moses was a child. In verse 11, he's a full-grown man, about 40 years of age. And we're told nothing of the in-between years. You know, I would have liked to have known what it was like running around the Pharaoh's palace and, you know, what kind of pranks he might have pulled and things like that. We know nothing of that. And what we see, though, is another parallel to the life of Christ. Because when you look at the life of Christ, you see the same thing. We know nothing of Jesus' life between the ages of 12 and 30. And and really, if it wasn't for that little insert there at at age 12, we wouldn't know much about Jesus' early life as well. Scripture then says he went out to his people. that's, That's informative. And he looked on their burdens. It seems that Moses understood who he was. He understood his identity, and he chose to identify with the people of God. These were his brothers. These were his people. And he went out to his people, and it grieved him to see the burden that they were under. Power, position, wealth, didn't have any bearing on how Moses felt. It didn't keep him from identifying with God's people. 
And one day he sees an Egyptian beating one of his brothers and he intervenes. And it's interesting, I, I didn't want to spend too much time there, but the word that's used for, for beating there is also the same word that is used in reference to Moses striking down the Egyptian. So it, it, it's unclear as to whether or not he was beating him to death or was about to beat him to death or whatever, but Moses intervened. And as the prince of Egypt, he had the right and the power to intervene. I like this little paragraph that comes from the commentary, Save for God's Glory. It says, from the standpoint of Egyptian law, Moses was probably within his rights. As a prince of Egypt, he held the power of the sword. And it is doubtful whether a member of Pharaoh's court would have been condemned simply for killing a slave driver. The Hebrew verdict on Moses would have been even more favorable as the Israelites, as far as they were concerned, because Moses would have been a patriot. On top of this, Moses could have simply ordered the man to stop. He could have stood between the two men and stared the Egyptian, you know, in the eyes. You know, sometimes that's all, you know, you have a superior that's staring a hole right through you. That would have made him stop, but he did it. Because I don't think Moses was thinking too much about justice. I think he was thinking more about vengeance. I, I think he was provoked in his spirit. He knew what he was about to do was wrong. Some, some people, even the commentary that I just read, you know, didn't, didn't think that this was premeditated murder. I disagree. I, I think it was. He, he knew what he was going to do was wrong. And how do we know that? Because he tells us. He looked this way and that. And seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. Now keep in mind, this was before the Ten Commandments were given to him. So what you see here is that his conscience was informing him that this was a, a wrong course of action. The law of God was written on his heart long before it was written on stone tablets. His emotions may have gotten the better of him, but this, in my opinion, appears to be an act of premeditated murder. For he took the time to look around. <laughs> However he did it. He struck the man down only when he knew the coast was clear. That takes forethought. That, that takes a degree of calmness to be able to say, you know, I, don't, I want to make sure nobody sees me do this. doesn't feel like a, just an act of passion, something that happened without thought. I think another clue that tells us that Moses knew that this was wrong was the fact that he hid the man in the sand. Moses was trying to cover up what he had done, and he hoped no one would ever find out. In Stephen's speech recorded in Acts chapter 7, we can conclude that Moses acted presumptuously. This is what Luke writes. He says, when he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He supposed 
that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand. But they did not understand. Did you hear that last part? He supposed or thought that his brothers would see him as their savior. He believed that God was granting them salvation through his hand, and he expected them to believe it too. I want to say, Moses, you're being presumptuous here. You've not prayed. There's no indication that you sought God. You have not met with God, not yet. God didn't tell you to kill this man. You could have chosen another course of action. You're you're acting like a self-appointed savior like the hero of your own story. And this is not going to end well for you. Verse 13. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together, and he said to the man in the wrong, Why do you strike your companion? And he answered, Who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid. And thought, surely the thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian. And he sat down by a well. Who made you a prince and judge over us? That's a good question. It certainly wasn't God. Moses won't receive his call for another 40 years. Moses acted presumptuously, and there are consequences to his impertinence. Not only is his leadership rejected, but he becomes a fugitive. He's on the run. As careful as Moses was to hide his crime, the thing had become known. If it has become known to the Hebrews, he thought, Surely, it's going to become known to Pharaoh. The hole that he had dug to put the Egyptian in is the very hole he's standing in now. And he can't climb out of it. And as soon as Pharaoh found out, he was out for blood. And all that Moses could do was flee. To run away. To get as far from Egypt as as possible. You have to imagine that in this moment... He sees his life kind of flash before his eyes. It's over. It's over. I I can't ever come back. I'll never walk in the palace again. I'll never have this opportunity again to serve God, to help my people. I think his heart was in the right place. I think he just made a bad decision. And I think one lesson that we should take away from this passage is something that Moses said many years later and recorded in the book of Numbers in speaking to the tribes of Gad and Reuben. He said this, be sure your sin will find you out. I think he learned that lesson here. It's a lesson that we need to learn. Jesus tells us in Luke chapter 8, verse 17, for nothing is hidden that will not be made manifest. Nor is anything secret that will not be known and come to light. That's a sobering thought. 
Because we can go through life deceiving other people. I think even deceiving ourselves into thinking we can get away with something. That we can sin and it's not a big deal. I can hide it. I can cover it up. But God sees. God knows. And Moses learned your sin will find you out. And when it does, the price is not something you want to pay. Moses now is out of harm's way. And he settles down and settles in in Midian. So that's our second point. Look at verses 16 and following. It says, Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and filled their troughs to water their father's flock. And the shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. And when they came to their father, Ruel, he said, How is it that you have come home so soon today? And they said, An Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered the flock. And he said to his daughters, Then where is he? Why have you left the man? Call him that he may eat bread. And Moses was content to dwell with the man. And he gave Moses his daughter Zipporah. And she gave birth to a son. And he called his name Gershom. For he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. So Moses is now by a well in the middle of nowhere. And once again, he finds himself in the middle of somebody else's conflict. Good news is, is this time he didn't kill anybody. He comes to the rescue of some women who had come to draw water uh, for um, livestock, the father's flock. Um, And Moses not only saved them from these men, but he also watered their flock. And when the women returned home, they told their father, uh, Ruel, uh, also known as Jethro, all that had happened. And Jethro's thinking, well, where is he? Why didn't you invite him to dinner? Why'd you leave him out there by, by the well? And next thing you know, Moses got more than a meal. <laughs> he got a wife. Well, I don't think we should overlook the significance of this because by marrying and establishing a family, Moses resigned himself to life in Midian, to the life of being a a husband, a father, and later a shepherd. This is a far cry from the Savior of Israel that he thought that he was. See, when you feel like God's put you up on the shelf, you got to find the next best thing. I guess it's Midian. I guess it's marriage, having kids, being a shepherd. Well, although he settled down and settled in, his heart was never really settled because he knew that Midian really wasn't his home. It wasn't his true home. He regarded himself as an alien in a foreign land. That's why he named his son Gershom. You know, it, it literally means a stranger here. So he had this, every time he was, hey, Gershom, it was a constant reminder. I'm a stranger in a foreign land. I'm an alien. I'm an exile. Moses is going to spend 40 years of life 
Um, as, as, it's, it's, it's uh, what's the word? Self-imposed. It's an exile that is self-imposed for 40 years. But here's the good news. They won't be wasted years. So here's the question that when I was first looking at the text, you know, I, I, I asked was, why does Moses include his sins and his failures and the details about his personal life in this chapter? It's not very flattering. I thought the book was about God's greatness, his power, his majesty. I thought it was about his holiness, his faithfulness, his love. I thought it was a story of deliverance and redemption. Well, it is precisely because that's what the book is about that Moses includes all these things. Say, huh? First of all, remember that we're not seeing the full picture yet. This is a part of a larger narrative. Moses is setting the stage to let us know that despite his sin and his failings, God is not done with him yet. Now, it's been said that waiting time is never wasted time. And Moses did a lot of waiting. In sharing these details about his life, Moses wants us to understand. He wants us to see that God is the true Savior, not him. He wants us to know that deliverance does not come from the hand of man. It comes from the hand of God. He wants his readers to understand that it is futile to presume upon God and attempt to serve him in our own wisdom and strength. Rather, we're to wait for his leading, rely on his wisdom and might. It is so easy for us to trust in our own intellect, our own abilities, our own resources, even. I mean, how many times have we failed to pray because we think we don't need to? Now, we don't, we don't think about it in this logical, well, I don't need to pray, so I'm not going to do it. It just happens naturally. And why do we do that? It's because we, we know what we want to do. We have the smarts. We have the resources, we have the strength, we have the power to do it. Why do I need to pray? Why do I need to ask God for something that I can do on my own? How often have we made decisions and then asked God to bless them from whom we choose to date, to where we go to school, to whom we will marry, to where we will live, to what we will do with our time and our money? See, in Midian, Moses is learning a hard lesson. He's learning to wait. He's learning to wait on God and to trust him. I've said this before, waiting is not easy for me. Waiting on God is even harder. Here in Midian, he, he learns to be a husband and a father and eventually a keeper of sheep. He learns to be content with who he is and what he has. Again, something difficult for me. And I presume difficult for you. 
Paul writes in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 6, he says, But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we can, cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. You ever thought, could you say that? If all I had is food and clothing, I could be content. I don't think I'm there yet. That seems pretty sparse, pretty... There's not food and clothing. What about shelter? What about safety, security? I mean, those are important things too. I I think Paul is serious here. He's just saying, you know what? I, I have learned the secret of being content in all circumstances. I've had plenty, I've had nothing. But God has been... The, the stabilizing force in my life. He has provided every step of the way. And, and I think he's learning here. The scripture says he was content to dwell with him. He obviously was content to be married and have children. In Midian, God was preparing Moses for service through the ordinary things of life. And God does the same with us. We learn to follow Christ in the ordinary, mundane things of life. We learn how to follow him in our homes, in our schools, in our workplaces, amongst family, with friends. It's in the the humdrum of life that our character is refined and we become usable. And if we expect God to, to use us in big things, we better be faithful in the little things. Jesus said in Luke 16, 10, one who is faithful in very little is also faithful in much. And one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. See, ordinary life, that's the proving ground for our growth in Christ, for those who aspire to to, to lead God's people. Are you faithful in the little things? Have you learned the secret of contentment? Are you learning to wait on God and not act presumptuously? During the time that Moses was in Median, God was not only preparing him to be a leader, but he was also preparing his people to follow his leadership. Because he was rejected earlier. And God has to work on the hearts of the people to bring them to a place where they're crying out to him and, and, and are ready to follow God's appointed deliverer. God had to make them ready, and he did so in time through suffering. So my last point this morning is that section, the very last couple of verses, where God hears the cry of his people. During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. There is so much going on in these two verses. It's hard for me not to get excited. I don't know why I would not want to get excited, but verse 23 begins by telling us something very important. Pharaoh is dead. 
Now, this sets the stage for Moses' return to Egypt. But note what the phrase is connected to. It says, The king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. So apparently, things went from bad to worse. The change in regime, you know, or the new president there in Egypt didn't change anything for them except to make things worse. And it got so bad that this is the first time that we're told that the people groaned and complained. I'm sure there were people who were groaning and complaining before. But it also adds that they cried out to God. And I wonder, did they collectively, prior to this, cry out to God. We're not told that they did or that they didn't, but it seems here, it would appear that the answer was no. And I think the reason for that is because we have a, a, a tendency, human beings do, we have a high tolerance for misery. We, we get used to life a certain way. I don't know. I, I, you know, when you don't know you're missing something, you don't miss it. When you think this is all there is to life, we're slaves in Egypt. This is our lot in life. And you've been there for 400 years. I mean, does it even enter into your mind that things could be any better, any different than this? But things got so bad that they groaned. And and the word groan there means to sigh or to mourn. It's an inarticulate expression of pain and grief. And the phrase cried out for help means to wail or to shriek or to cry out in agony. It is an intense call for help and carries the sense of a battle cry. The people are finally at the end of their rope. God now has their attention and he has been preparing them through suffering to accept the leadership of Moses. I just love verse 24. I've been thinking about this for the last couple of weeks. Four times in this verse, Moses intentionally prefaces God's response by using his name, Elohim. Now, some English translations um, you know, will use the, the personal pronoun he, but, but there's a reason why Moses says four times Elohim. God is the subject. He is the focus here. And each phrase tells us a little bit more about our God. God heard. Elohim heard. He heard their groaning. He hears our cries as well. God is a God who hears. And not just hears, but he listens. He listens to us when we pray, when we cry out to him. He listens to our praise. God inhabits the praises of his people. How comforting is that to know that we can come before the throne of grace and and we can pray to him and know that he hears us and that he listens. But scripture also says that God remembered God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, this doesn't mean that God had forgotten it. Oh, and then he remembered. Whenever scripture says God remembers someone or something, it always means he's about to act. He is about to take action. And then we're told that God saw. 
God saw the people of Israel. This isn't just like God happened to be taking a stroll one day and he was just looking around and he, he notices he saw his people and then he moved on to some better scenery. No. He saw them so as to perceive and understand what they were going through. God took special notice of them. Again, how, how comforting is that to know that God takes special notice of us. He perceives and he understands what we're experiencing, what we're going through. We do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. And then we're told, and this is the best part, God knew. I just love how it ends, and God knew. Nothing to add, no qualifier, just, and God knew. The sense here, of course, is that God took note of his people in an empathetic and personal way. He felt a deep concern for his people. And certainly he was concerned about their suffering, but I think it's much more than that. I think God knew deliverance was coming. God knew that he was about to appear to Moses and visit Pharaoh with mighty plagues. He knew that he was about to rescue his people out of Egypt and that very soon his people would come to know him in a very new and and personal way, intimate even. And God also knew that their deliverance would point to a greater deliverance and pave the way for a greater Savior to come, his own Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. God heard their cry, remembered his covenant, God saw his people, and God knew. God hears our cries, and he sees us too. He knows what we've gone through, what we're going through. He knows what we will go through. And God has also remembered and acted upon his promises. He has been faithful to every one of them. 2,000 years ago, in keeping with the covenant that he made to Abraham, God sent his one and only son to live a perfect life to never sin once, yet at the end of his life, he took the sins of the world upon himself and he died on a cross, taking the punishment that we deserve for our sins so that we could be free to worship God, that we might know God, that we might love God, that we might serve God. God is a God of second chances and third chances and fourth chances. His grace is greater than all of our sin. God sent Jesus to deliver us from the bondage of sin by going to the cross, by dying a horrible death, by being buried in a tomb, and by being raised from the dead. So that when we repent and believe the gospel, We are saved. We become children of God. We become heirs of the promise. That's what God has done for us. So I want to ask you, have you cried out to God to save you? 
If you haven't done that yet, I urge you, do that today. Don't, don't put off to tomorrow what can be done today. You have no guarantee of another minute, let alone another day or another year. Repent of your sins and believe in the Lord Jesus. There are so many lessons that we can take away, and I had to cut so much this morning. But if we just slowed down enough and looked and meditated on this, it, it would blow us away. But perhaps maybe the most important lesson in this text is that God is not hamstrung by our sin and our failures. God can use imperfect people to accomplish his purposes. You know why? Because that's the only kind of people God can use. There are no perfect people. We are all sinners. We all fall, fall short of his glory. But by God's grace and power, our sins and our failures, they don't get the last word. Nor do the sinful actions of other people. I have shared previously, I don't know how long ago, a little bit of my own story. And so in closing this morning, I'd like to, to, to do it again. Um, a little over... 30 years ago, I went through probably the darkest time of my life. Um, not as a result of my own sin, but the sin of, an, of another person. And it just rocked my world. And at that point in my life, I, I thought life was over. Uh, there's no way God can use me now. Um, there's no church would, would, would look at me, would want me to serve as their pastor. It was a debilitating time. It was like, where do I go from here? I spent thousands of dollars going to school to study for the ministry, to be in ministry. And now I felt like, you know, the, the, the floor was taken out from underneath me. And I felt, I often equated how I felt to being like a surgeon with his hands cut off. What do you do? And then I had a gentleman who was a good friend of mine, someone who I worked with in Myrtle Beach uh, a couple of summers in ministry, um, who, um, who showed up one day, a cold December day, if I remember. And I remember he pulled me aside. And as I'm going through this, he, he walked with me through the whole thing. In fact, I found myself sleeping on his couch on uh, numerous occasions. But, but anyway, I walked through the whole thing, and, and I remember he looked me in the eye, and he says, I want you to know something. I said, what's that? He says, God's not through with you yet. I want you to consider coming back to the beach and working with me this summer. He had no idea, nor do I think he still has any idea of what that did for me how that impacted my life. I am here today because of what he said to me then 30 years ago. And he put his money where his mouth was. <laughs> he didn't just say, hey, you know, God's not through yet. Have a great day. You know, he said, no, I'm here to walk with you through this. I want you to come and work with me again. Let's, uh, let's do this together. Let's serve God. Let's see what God will do. And I'll never, never forget that. So if you have ever felt like a failure or that God has put you up on the shelf, just remember Moses. Remember Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, King David, 
the apostles, Thomas, Peter, Paul, or even this Paul. You're in good company. And if you think that God can't use you or that your best days are behind you, think again. Because God's not through with you yet. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for our time together this morning, for your word to us, for the encouragement that it is, and Lord, for the promise that we have that you have fulfilled in Christ and that all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Lord, it's my prayer that if there's anyone here this morning that has not yet done that, that today, right now, they would call upon you to save them. And then they would then share that good news with someone else that we might rejoice together. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.